Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, hello. This is the History of England, and this is episode 181. 15th century rural economy. Doesn't that sound a hoot? First of all, just to remind you that I'm a proud and fully paid up member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and then. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month, our featured podcast is 10 American Presidents by Royfield Brown. And you can find out more by going to acast.com forward slash 10 American Presidents. So, before we got distracted by the finer details of the gentry, we were talking about how things changed for the lords and for the masters, how the secular and ecclesiastical aristocracy were hit by falling incomes as the effects of the Black Death finally began to bite after the 1370s, how the poor lambs had to change from the traditional direct management of their estates from the days of the High Middle Ages, and how this led to a new breed of farmer, as these changes gave the gentry, merchants and peasantry new opportunities to gain more land. This time we're going to talk a bit more about how the gentry and peasantry reacted to and were affected by all these changes, and what this meant for them and their lives. But before we get into that, I'll start with a general observation about how economic changes began to affect the way the countryside looked in the 15th century. The 13th and 14th centuries had seen mixed and arable farming reign supreme as the large population demanded food and demanded grain. And the plentiful supply of people and labour meant that this kind of intensive farming could be supported with the plentiful workforce. All that changed with the Black Death, though, as we'd said, it took a surprisingly long time to work its way through. But as a result, during the 15th century, the new farmers that emerged from the late days of the 14th oversaw a massive change in land use in England. Now, let me stress, this was a trend forced on them by economic circumstance, not necessarily initiated by them. But in many cases, it was them that saw it through. Essentially, arable farming became a problem. Grain yields for wheat in particular fell dramatically in many cases, where in the glory days of high farming, landowners had achieved a return of close to four grains for each grain sown. This fell to something like three and a half, which is hardly barely worth the rough end of a pineapple. Not that pineapples were grown in medieval England, well, until the 17th century. Barley, on the other hand, seems to have varied it and fallen less than wheat, while the yield for oats probably fell very little, but oats were very unpredictable and varied a lot from year to year. And some years, of course, in the 15th century were genuinely catastrophic harvest-wise, with back-to-back harvest failures across all the grains, such as 
1437 to 8 or 1464, where yields fell by as much as 30%. Now, so yields in arable were rubbish, and there were a couple of reasons for this rubbishness. One reason was that there were simply not enough people to work the land. Arable farming demanded a large workforce to plough, to tend and harvest the crop. These folks simply weren't around. Most of them were six feet under. Plus, the climate, though not yet to the excesses of the Little Ice Age, was getting more and more rubbish, cooler and wetter. It might actually have been worse than that. The period 1400 to 1420 has been described as the single greatest atmospheric change of the second millennium. And anyway, and secondly, even if you did manage to bring in a reasonable harvest, despite all the pain and problems and obstacles, you got a rubbish price for it anyway, so why bother? Now, the answer to what happens lies in one of those books that gets referred to all the time, and which I've never read. Utopia by Thomas More. Here's a quote. Your sheep that were wont to be so meek and tame, and so small eaters now, as I heard say, be become so great devourers and so wild that they eat up and swallow down the very men themselves. They consume, destroy, and devour whole fields, houses, and cities. Now, that sounds like an odd quote. I can't think of many breeds of sheep associated with flesh-eating. But what Thomas More was describing was the result of these basic economic and environmental facts, which led to a similar response from farmers of all types all over the country, which was... In short, turn arable land to pasture. Now, there were other strategies folks could follow. Growing more barley, for example, where yields held up. But the thing about pasture, and therefore livestock, was that not only were you less affected by the weather, you also didn't need anything like the number of people to work the land. So, huge flocks of sheep covering hundreds of acres could be looked after by a few shepherds. It was in this way that many farmers solved the conundrum, in part, of falling incomes. OK, so lots more pasture. And that led to village-eating sheep, because of a process called enclosure. Essentially, the strip farming we have talked about as the medieval model with each villager owning a 30-acre yardland spread over the shared fields that surrounded a village, was more than a little sucky when it came to pasturing livestock, for pretty obvious reasons. For pasture and livestock, what you needed was a bigger network of coherent fields. And also, you needed to fence them off, otherwise all those animals would go wandering off, walk all over the crops you were still growing, destroy them, eat them, and you've got chaos but the process of enclosure was very, very controversial. It was controversial then, it would continue to be so for centuries, and it's more than a bit controversial now. In fact, it is a dangerous area, so I hope I am not going to be leapt on by anyone as I talk this through. And in the words of E.P. Thompson on the history of enclosure, A novice in agricultural history caught loitering in those areas with intent would quickly be dispatched. But 
Bravely risking the danger of being dispatched, let me say that there are very crudely two lines of thought, both then and now. In the blue corner, I put it to you that enclosure was something forced on the poor and defenceless peasantry by evil landowners, with fangs dripping from the blood of the families whose livelihood they had slaughtered. In later history, it was seen as a process by which land was taken out of the hands of a wide cross-section of society for the benefit of just a very few. Even if the peasants hadn't owned the land, through the community of strip farming and common land, they'd had a stake in it. The images of weeping families dragging themselves to the poorhouse, while behind them their village stands decayed, ruined and empty. Real ale, socks and open-toed sandals, much in evidence here, even the odd nut cutlet and Friends of the Earth banner in the background, maybe a copy of The Socialist Worker. But actually, back at the start of this, in the 15th and 16th centuries, many of the great and the good shared that very same horror. Thomas More, Cardinal Wolsey, to name but a few. The first major protest came from a Warwickshire priest called John Rouse in 1459. They saw this happening and saw the power of England being leached away. In the red corner is a much more positive picture, that actually it was part of an economic transformation in which the peasantry took full part, that it led to the development of a large, free, flexible wage labour force that would one day fuel the Industrial Revolution and transform the world for the better and lift Britain to the glories of world domination. Land of hope and glory. And all that sort of thing. You won't be surprised to learn, of course, that there is truth in both traditions. There is no doubt that ambitious landlords seized lands and rights in an attempt to improve their economic lot. In 1495, for example, one Thomas Piggott enclosed the fields of Doddershaw with fences and ditches. 120 people were forced to leave the village to find work and a livelihood elsewhere. 24 houses in the village were allowed to decay and fall down by the Piggott, who had no desire to see any of that lot return. He'd turned his land over to pasture and was making a nice buck and was all right jack. Now this was exactly the kind of situation Thomas More was talking about and was particularly common, in course, in areas that had been dominated by arable. But there are other models, and actually in the 15th century a good deal more common than the straightforward enemy-of-the-people approach. One of them, in particular, involves the gentry buying up land from the peasants and buying the rights that went along with them and then enclosing the land. So, to quote some examples, Ralph Woolsey, a South Staffordshire lord, bought from the villagers the rights to a large area of woodland and then enclosed it and used the land for a rabbit warren and to generate fuel for a glasshouse. He also, by the by, built a brewery for beer which caused the villagers to riot since it put the local ale brewers out of business. Now, in a sense, this is far more acceptable. But, of course, in the longer run had equally dramatic impact. Purchases like these often disrupted the economic viability of the village. If the villagers sold their rights to grazing on common pasture, for example, the balance of their community and its ability to earn a living was all over the place. So, although it sounds a bit more reasonable than just taking it and enclosing it, often these entrepreneurial gentry pushed villagers into what could turn out to be pretty rubbish decisions. 
There is a third way, which is for the whole thing to be worked out amicably by the community themselves. And actually, while it doesn't make a good story and all of that, this does appear to happen, and it does appear to happen quite a lot. So in upland areas, more grazing land was enclosed, the open fields were reorganised and consolidated by the villagers. Examples again, at a village called Stoke Fleming in Devon, between 1400 and 1500, they moved from the traditional setup to being completely surrounded by enclosed fields with not an evil lord or weeping child to be seen. At a place called Sambourne, 16 half-yard landowners all got together and agreed to consolidate and enclose their land, which meant that 40 acres were enclosed. When this approach happened, much more land was enclosed than when some entrepreneur got involved who could rarely afford purchases of massive amount of land. But of course the thing is that this kind of approach didn't hit the news. But despite the fuss and bother, far more land was enclosed by this way than any other. Now I would hate you to rename me Pollyanna. I have no idea who Pollyanna actually was, but I gather she was a mindlessly positive soul and of course I would hate be considered as anything other than grumpy. So I'm not denying that there was pain and distress around enclosure on occasion, and given that there was an enclosures commission in 1517 to look at this very thing, it would be silly to deny that people were worried. But some of that worry at least reflected distress with the changing countryside and traditions, as much as reflecting real pain. So, let us focus then for a while on the gentry and how they coped with the century. By and large, the gentry only held one or two manors, which, as we observed last time, meant that as a group they were much more rooted in a locality than were the higher aristocracy. Nonetheless, the challenges they faced were reasonably similar. But unlike the magnates and peerage, the mirage and pagnates, there was much more of a smell of innovation and entrepreneurship in the way that gentry responded to the challenges. Now, of course, much of the response was necessarily similar, given that the challenges were the same. So they moved land from arable to pasture. They moved from direct management of more of their land to renting it. But the gentry got their income from a much wider range of sources than did the magnates. They served the magnates as administrators. They were the main beneficiaries of the wars in France, when they were going the right way anyway. And they manned the legal profession and got income from that. And, of course, they had far fewer opportunities for cost savings than did the magnates. With one or two manners, the gentry had far less flexibility. And they were also very much more intimately involved in farming and with their land. They knew their land in a level of detail at which the peerage would have sighed with boredom. It also meant that gentlewomen were much more directly involved in managing and administering estates as well. By and large, gentry farmers would now rent out their own land and be on hand to collect the rents, with much less need for bailiffs and reeves than had their magnates. The gentry would be able to pull their own family into helping out if there was a problem. They might have a home farm to grow food for the table, or they might rent themselves some land from a neighbouring manor to do that. And they concentrated on renting or buying land that helped them to grow their holdings and make them more efficient, building them into larger units. For example, it might be interesting to mention the Spencer family. 
I promise you, I absolutely promise you, this is not a cynical attempt to piggyback on interest for the most famous descendant of the Spencer family, who was, of course, Lady Di. But hey, I thought you might be interested to know where they came from. In 1469, John Spencer, who was probably a well-off and successful peasant, a Franklin or yeoman, managed to get himself enfiefed with two manors, one of them in Northamptonshire, Althorpe. However, John died without issue. His nephew, meanwhile, another John Spencer, was even more successful. He had accumulated land in eastern Warwickshire, all held on lease, by snapping up land from domains or on the sites of villages that had been converted to pasture. He became, at the same time, a livestock trader, and did well at that. Now, acquiring land on lease did not have the same impact on social status as did holding land as the lord of the manor. And so John was not satisfied until he'd saved enough to buy back those manors that his uncle had once held. By the early 16th century, John Spencer had been knighted and was a bona fide member of the gentry and the Spencers were on their long march to Westminster Abbey. Unfortunately, it appears that the Spencers were not proud of their previous membership of the working classes. By the start of the 17th century, the Spencers had acquired for themselves a completely new shiny history, along with a nice, smart new coat of arms, and a story. A story about being descendants from the noble dispensers. A story which was fit only for washing hogs. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But the Spencers were very far from being alone in reinventing their backstory. In the Middle Ages, equality was a four-letter word. Nowadays, of course, we'd be happy to sing and even make up working-class credentials. But times were different back then. For the enterprising gentry, it was still a world of opportunity. The Catesbys of Warwickshire, for example, converted to livestock and kept vast herds and flocks, and ran import and export in the sense they bought Welsh cattle and sold them on. The Townsend family in Norfolk had sheep as far as the eye could see, 12,000 of the woolly things, with a £200 profit which is a hill of beans, and make no mistake. And in fact, his successor pushed that up to 18,000, and that, my friends, is a lot of mutton. Others of the gentry took advantage of the fact they had at least some access to capital and invested in commercial and industrial things and enterprises, buying properties or businesses in towns, or investing in ironworking, tin, tile and glass manufacture, and all that sort of thing. By the way, Ski, I feel a digression coming on, a very quick one about glass. It made me wonder what the situation was in England as regards glass windows. Well, apparently glass had been around since Roman times. But while we might therefore think about our modern stuff, this glass was nothing like that. The way it was made was that you blew this elongated cylinder of brown glass, then cut off the end of it, cut it in half and rolled it out. The result was very small panes of thick brown glass called broadsheet, which were mounted in windows with leaded mullions. 
practically impossible to see through. There was this kind of glass around from Anglo-Saxon times. Bede gives glass in the monastery at Jarrow a mensch, for example, noting that they had to send to France for it. Then there's the invention of something called crown glass. There's a suggestion the process came from Syria, but it's certainly used in Europe from the 14th century. It was mainly produced in Normandy, with manufacture dominated by a few families who were, as a result, lauded and magnified. The idea was that you did it a bit like making pizza. You blew some glass, then span it around so you got this sort of circular sheet. It had bubbles and bumps, but hey, you could see through it. In England, it was only the very wealthiest who could afford it for their houses. From the 12th century, there were the odd broadsheet panes around in royal palaces. From the 13th century and crown glass, Henry III imported significant quantities. But everyone else had to use shutters and linen and all that sort of thing. It does make you appreciate just how drafty life would have been. I did then start looking up stained glass, but could feel my brain dribbling out of my ear, so thought I'd get back to the main story. So look, there were plenty of enterprising gentry folk around, and given their combination of circumstances, rather more exposed than the magnates, but more cash than the peasants, it often drove them to try new things. But there were plenty, of course, who just sat and suffered, or took risks that bombed. So last and indeed from a medieval social sense, least, we come to the peasantry. How was it for them, darling? Well, I am glad you asked that, and depending on who you asked, you would in all likelihood get a different answer. But you might find a prof, leaning forward with passionate and even slightly maniacal gleams in the eye. Maybe the prof would thump the table. Maybe a tear would escape and roll down a reddened cheek as the prof described the pitiful vulnerability of the peasant as the prof breaks down and weeps. Between gasps of pain and distress, our prof will tell you that in England, the peasant's landholding status as a tenant was pitifully easy to terminate, unlike France, unlike France, where customs and dues meant that peasants had the right of tenure. At this point, you might realise that actually the internationale is playing in the background and getting louder. Through weeping eyes and with clenched fists, our prof might tell you that the world was full of predatory gentry, constantly innovating and increasing their landholding, enclosing the land and brutally, brutally throwing peasants onto the track with a happy, ha-ha, <laughs> callous laugh. A contrast will be drawn between the traditional, family, community-loving peasantry and the cold, exploitative gentry, dripping blood from their rotted incisors. As the Internationale rises to a crescendo, and you wonder who's turning the volume up, our prof will thunder that as a result of the vicious exploitation of the honest and defenceless masses, more than 2,000 villages were abandoned between 1350 and 1520, that about half a million, half a million homes were abandoned over the same period, and the remorseless, pitiless world of capitalism ushered in on the skeletal backs of the broken peasantry. At this point, our prof will probably ask you if you'd like Darjeeling or Orange Pico. But there is one view of the 15th century, the friendless and vulnerable peasantry exploited by a gentry on the make. Alternative views are, of course, available. But there's no doubt, of course, that there were peasants who suffered badly at the hands of landowners. Many peasants held their land under a status called copyhold. These villains were descendant from 13th and 14th century serfs who'd had a copy of their title. Copyhold was an odd sort of tenure, somewhere between a tenant and a landowner. 
Copyholders didn't actually own their land, but they could sell it, and they could hand it down to their children through a will. But the point was that every change of landholder had to go through their lord, who was the official freeholder. So lords could charge a fee for the descendants to inherit, a heriot as it was called, and if they liked, they could charge an extortionate amount, effectively disinheriting the peasant family. Put this together with the numbers, 2,000 villages that disappeared, half a million homes deserted, and surely you have a story of oppression. What would you call someone who lies outside your front door? Well, there's plenty of evidence that the peasantry were not called Matt, and were not just people you could wipe your feet on. They were frequently able to organise to resist unfair extortions. At Quinton, for example, they all got together, persuaded their priest to speak for them and faced down a farmer who was indeed looking to force a family off their copyhold. And anyway, for lords in the background was always that question, where do I find someone else to take this land, if I do chuck a family off? And actually, the 2,000 abandoned villages are evidence every bit as much of liberation as it is of oppression. OK, the Black Death had a big impact, though as you'll remember, the number of villages abandoned solely because of the Black Death is much rarer than we'd once thought. But it did make many more villages vulnerable. So some communities simply died from lack of interest. A good proportion of those deserted houses were in hamlets or isolated farmsteads. Essentially, as often as not, peasant took themselves out of these villages rather than being forced out. The manor courts actually have loads of examples of lords using their courts to try to stop peasants leaving their villages, rather than throwing them out. The decline of these villages is not quick, as you'd expect if a lord wanted to simply rub it out and turn the land to pasture. No, the decline tends to be long and slow. Sometimes villagers used their newfound economic power and left for new opportunities. Sometimes the decrease in size from the Black Death meant the village simply lacked the amenities they needed or had once had, and so they moved somewhere else brighter, more vibrant. The good professor, now preparing you your orange pico, would have said to you that the peasantry were communal beings, working together for the greater good of the community, unlike the greedy, individualistic gents. And it appears that there was indeed a lot of continuity amongst the peasantry, Something between one-fifth and one-third of peasants in 15th century England lived absolutely as their predecessors had done for centuries, with a yardland of 15 to 30 acres, with a mixed farming approach and a strong focus on the cultivation of corn and access to shared common land and resources. And most peasants gained strength from their community. There are plenty of examples of common action in the face of pressure from landlords rent strikes, threats to leave the manor. One of the reasons why we know so much about enclosure is because peasants took collective legal action against landlords and often succeeded, and so the records survive. And of course, let's not forget the Peasants' Revolts of 1381 and 1450. But we should not assume that this stability and lack of change meant that peasants were not driven by economic considerations and the ambition to improve their lot. 
One of the reasons why so many did not change was because of the economic circumstances, which were just not good for producers. The price of produce was low and labour. Labour was achingly scarce. Once you got beyond the size of holding you could work with you and your family, then you really hit problems. So there's plenty of evidence of continuity, of the continuing medieval communal attitude. But there are also plenty of indicators of change. Plenty of evidence also that a significant proportion of the peasantry were very much driven by ambition, whose behaviours were very much the result of rational economic considerations and individuality. So, sometimes it was peasants themselves who caused trouble to their fellow villagers in pursuit of the ambition to better themselves. So, at Hangleton, a peasant built his new house on the site of five others. In Gloucestershire, another stuck all his sheep on the common pasture and overgrazed it. One Andrew Bayer of Denjmarsh in Kent kept excessive numbers of cattle, so much so that in the words of the court, quote, he had driven away half Denjmarsh. We know that people moved, as we said. In fact, so much so that three quarters of the families living in villages in Norfolk changed every 50 years. Now that is quite a stat, which rather flatly contradicts the image of the solid, unchanging medieval world. So let us take the example of the Underhill family of Worcestershire. George Underhill was a serf of Hampton Lovett, when in 1479 he upped sticks and moved five miles away to grasp the opportunity to become a tenant with land and the end of his serfdom, plus the chance to make a bit on the side selling food and drink. His son Richard followed his example, emigrating 20 miles away to Tewkesbury, where he became a tanner. George and Richard's behaviour illustrates another basic change in family relationships. In the 13th and 14th centuries, families tended to stay together. Parents carefully managed and passed on their land to their children, and families tended to stay in the same place, a son inherited from father. That became much, much less standard in the 15th century England, because many land transactions were from outside the family. Essentially, children moved away to make their fortune. The reason why seems obvious. When land was scarce, it made sense to stick around and inherit, because you didn't have many options and land had very high value. When it was freely available, you had more freedom. Land was of relatively less value. You could be picky and choosy and take up the best opportunity wherever it was. And, of course, as we've said many times now, all this movement and opportunity meant that servile status pretty much came to an end in the 15th century. It also meant that living standards gently rose. Cheaper prices, more available land, more flexibility in movement meant higher incomes. In many areas, the size of houses grew. New buildings tended to be larger, sometimes with two storeys. In some places, houses at the time were roofed with slate rather than thatch. Many peasants had more space, more privacy even. Peasants bought more clothing, furnishings and household equipment. They ate better. Most would now expect meat every day. And villagers collectively spent more on their churches. And some of this was a general rise in living standards as wages rose and prices fell. But part of it was through individual endeavour much like the gentry, combining land holdings, acquiring more land. In the early 14th century, a tiny proportion of peasants held more than their 30 acres worth. By 1500, about one-eighth held more than 50 acres. They faced the same problem as the gentry, finding labour to work their land. 
and very often they adopted the same strategies, converting land to pasture, getting involved in industry, or if not landholders, travelling to find the best work. Peasant landholders innovated. In Norfolk, more fallow land was used, and the idea of convertible husbandry made its appearance. Convertible husbandry has nothing to do with being able to trade in your husband when he gets a bit weary-looking. It is in fact considered an essential part of the agricultural revolution, and normally talked about in the context of the 16th century, but actually it was alive and kicking in the 15th. The idea of convertible husbandry was that you had land as arable for a year or three, and then converted it to pasture for a few and then back. This meant that land recovered its fertility while still delivering produce. Yields from the land improved, while returns from traditional domains fell. A quiet change in technology helped as well. Horses became much more common for ploughing, which were much faster. Peasants specialised more, such as the saffron gardens of Walden. Oakley Doakley, just a couple more changes before we finish for the week. One of the shifts that happened as the economy changed was the relative wealth of the shires. If you lived in the crowded and prosperous 13th century and you lived in Norfolk and Lincolnshire, you would have been living in the agricultural engine of England. Wonderfully productive arable land yielding substantial incomes fed by the high price of grain. In the 15th century, both counties were overtaken by Suffolk, Essex and Kent, driven by specialisation, the cloth industry, trade, access to London. They were overtaken by Gloucestershire and Somerset as the cloth industry boomed in those counties and even Cornwall overtook them as tin boomed. Only the north remained exactly where it was in terms of relative wealth. With these changes arrives the use of the term yeoman. Like the term gentry, it's a nebulous term, ill-defined by the standard of medieval society. It seems to have originated as designating a household servant in the 12th century, but became the word for a successful peasant, someone in the grey area between gentry and peasantry. One account gives it that a yeoman would rarely hold less than a 100 acres of land. Another, that they were defined by the then parliamentary voting requirement to have landed income worth 40 shillings or more. But however you defined them, these were the folk building their grander houses, revelling in the opportunities and living standards of the 15th century. Which only leaves it to me, ladies and gentlemen, to thank you all for your kind attention and to thank those of you who have donated such as my faithful and most laudable monthly donators, James, Oak, Bernard, Russell, Henry and M-A-C-R-A-C, Ross, Alan, Simon, Richard, David, Adrian, Tudor Queen, Jim, Cathy, Ian and Amy. And also those generous souls who have donated this month, Simon, Ernest, Philip, James, Robert and Adam. So, fare thee well, gentlefolk, fare thee well and hie thee to the podcast poll next week, when I can collapse in a heap and we'll have David McLean back as a guest talking about Arthur. Good luck everyone and have a great week.